Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Today, we have a treat. Now, every week on the show, I try to bring you the best people, and we have great guests all the time. Uh, But this week, we have someone I think will go down as a legend in the history of the whole climate debate, and more broadly, uh, the battle for science and the battle for energy. And this is Dr. Ross McKittrick of the University of Guelph, who was famously involved, at least uh, for the famously for those who follow the field, in the hockey stick scandal, I'll call it a scandal. He might—he's a pretty mild-mannered guy, so he might not put it that strongly. Um, but he and a guy named Steve McIntyre have done truly heroic work in terms of taking a monolith, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and its public claims to be the final authority on all of these issues. And you know they spent a lot of time going up against a lot of powerful people um, and exposing that this hockey stick was was fundamentally flawed, that it was the result of bad methodology, and that there were all sorts of implications for the credibility of this organization that people treat as a as a deity. So anyway, we'll ask Dr. McKittrick about his story, uh, but in case you weren't motivated to listen, this is the power hour uh, to listen to. Uh, no, really key figure in the history of all these issues. Uh, brilliant guy. Can't wait. And I will talk to you on the other side. Power Hour. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us now is Dr. Ross McKittrick of the University of Guelph. I think I'm pronouncing that more or less correctly. Uh, correct. uh, an economist and... Well, you guys will see he's got a great story. Uh, Ross, welcome to Power Hour. Thanks, Alex. So you're an economist who's become one of the major figures in the climate debate over the past uh, 10 years. How did you become interested in this field? Well, when I was doing my PhD in economics back in the 1990s, I was interested in uh, environmental economics, and partly because in the 80s, when, when I was doing an undergrad degree, there were all kinds of issues coming out. There was a bit of talk of global warming, but there was also acid rain and ozone depletion and water pollution, lots of stuff kind of hitting the news, and I thought it all looked interesting. But what struck me was that when they got to talking about the policy side of it, uh, there was a kind of a halo around the policy discussion, and, and people set the economics aside right away. And that was different from any other major policy issue. And Canada was also looking at trade agreements and monetary policy and fiscal policy. And of course, in all of those areas, economics is central to the discussion. And then when it came to things like pollution control or balancing growth and environmental quality, uh, economics didn't seem to be involved in the discussion. So I thought, well, uh, we got to have something to say on all of this. So when I was at grad school, 
there weren't any courses in the field of environmental economics, but there were some uh, faculty and students interested in it. So I started working on it, and I, I took as a topic um, doing some simulations of carbon taxes on the Canadian economy. Not because I was particularly interested in the climate change issue. Actually, it was because it, it was pretty easy compared to uh, looking at some of the other air pollution <laughs> issues. Uh, you could take a, an energy sector model and really just throw some extra coefficients in, and now you've got a carbon emissions model, where it would be much more difficult to, to do a model of NOx emissions or aerosol formation or anything like that. So um, my PhD was on carbon taxes in the Canadian economy, and when that came out in the mid-1990s, again, there just really weren't many people working in that field. So I started getting invited to various conferences and workshops because, of course, the government of Canada, like most governments, was trying to think through all this stuff. And so I would see the boilerplate presentations of the science side, and then I would stand up and do a kind of boilerplate presentation of the economic side. And, and that went on for a couple of years. And then finally, I guess what happened, and I was teaching just really standard introductory descriptions of climate change science, the stuff you'd pick up from a Scientific American article uh, in my courses. And then uh, I was at one workshop where somebody showed the satellite data. And uh, I thought, that's really interesting. That It turns out there's another way of measuring this, and the two measurements aren't really giving the same answer. And I thought, of all the presentations I've seen, nobody had ever mentioned that's a pretty important point. Nobody mentioned it, so what else haven't I been shown? And I just started doing more reading at that point on some of the physical science issues. And then um, all this was happening in Canada around 2001, 2002, when Canada was struggling about whether to ratify the Kyoto Protocol. And I came to a pretty clear conclusion that that would be a bad idea for Canada. And also that I thought the scientific argument was a lot less strong than it was typically made out to be. And I began to write about it at that point and um, got uh, a fair amount of attention for doing so. And from there, I just uh, followed my curiosity, really. The, the One of the things about being an economist is you get a lot of training in um, data analysis, especially time series data, but you get a lot of statistical training uh, when you do a PhD in economics. And I could look at some of these climate reports and climate papers and just see right away that they weren't doing a very good job with their data analysis, and a lot of it's really amateurish. And so I would get the data sets and start working on them myself. And, and so that led to uh, quite a few publications over the years, some of them to do with uh, surface temperature measurement and, and model data comparisons, and then the hockey stick work with Steve McIntyre. Um, one way or another, the connection has always been uh, looking at something, not liking how the data was being analyzed, and, and deciding to do it myself. So when you got when you got started, you mentioned two instances of, I'll, I'll put it as there's something fishy in terms of you weren't even familiar with this whole range of satellite data, which would assume, in effect, you might assume to be part of 101, what everyone would be introduced to. And then you see that there's this, I'll say, inept uh, statistical work in a field that is portrayed to the public as incredibly advanced and cutting edge. 
how did you process those the time beyond I don't like that? Or did you have any suspicion of what was what was behind that? Um, well, uh, I guess uh, uh, there were other things too, like uh, sometimes if I would email someone for information rather than just getting a, a courteous reply, I get a really rude brush off or um, or I would look at um, the way um, other people were were getting treated if they they raise questions, um, especially anyone questioning the IPCC at that point, even though um, they were um, there was still obviously lots of gray areas and, and uncertainty in what they were saying, but um, it was it looked to me like it was getting kind of difficult for people in, in the climatology field to take a position against the IPCC. And another thing that just struck me was I can't think of any other scientific field that has a UN panel that every five years sort of drops a Bible on everybody and, and says, this is what you have to believe now. And there's nothing even remotely close in economics. I, I think there'd just be a palace revolt in economics if if the UN had a panel that uh, issued a report like that and everybody was supposed to agree with it. Um, so those kinds of things all just kept striking me as, this is really odd and it's curious and there are huge economic implications. So. Um, once I got started working on those things, it was hard to uh, hard to stop. I like that image of the the Bible being being thrown. I mean, their response uh, would be, "Well, you know, economics isn't nearly as as certain as climate science, and and so I mean, it, and the public is just so uneducated because it's this new important discovery that we're you know trashing the planet." Um, I mean, how did, was that ever plausible to you or, or did you see that other science, I mean, I guess other sciences that are like physics don't throw Bibles either? Um, well, actually that very point was made to me at one point by uh, someone working in the field who was very involved with the IPCC that, well, you're an economist and economists just uh, throw opinions at each other, but there's no uh, science to it. And this is hard sciences where everything is just based on on data and physics, and um, I could see if if you don't know anything at all about the subject, that almost sounds plausible. But um, then, whenever I look into specific topics, uh, well, first of all, I thought, well, if it's all that simple, then why do you need two thousand scientists writing a thousand-page report thrashing over all these issues? I mean, um, surely just a short report by two or three would, would do. And, um, uh, but the, that view kind of evaporates when you pick any one topic and you just start pulling on the thread. And, and uh, so like I did a, uh, I got interested in the surface temperature record and that was just from looking at some weblog sites who were saying what the, so a lot of thermometers around the world are at airports and in urban areas and, and this must be contaminating the record. And in the IPCC, they just blew that off with hardly any effort to investigate it. They cited a couple of papers, but when I looked at the papers, they couldn't really support any strong conclusion. And so I thought, okay, a basic question for me is, they say they have ways of processing 
the underlying raw data to remove any um, contaminating correlation with local socioeconomic activity. So, okay, fine. If that's true, then the spatial pattern of warming and cooling shouldn't be correlated around the world with the spatial pattern of industrialization. That's, that's something we can test. And uh, I looked and, and nobody had tested it. And so I began working on that topic and finding that actually these correlations are quite strong and uh, was uh, had a bit of a struggle to get this stuff published, but got it published in, in climatology journals. And then the response of the IPCC in the fourth assessment report was uh, being unable to actually rebut any of it. They just fabricated a line that my results were statistically insignificant if you took account of natural climate circulations. And uh, there's absolutely no evidence to support that statement. It was just made up out of thin air. And um, so I spent another couple of years rebutting that statement in journal articles and rebutting all their attempted defenses of it. And then finally, in the new assessment report, the fifth assessment report, there's a couple of grudging sentences where they, first of all, say they had no evidence to support the claim they made last time. And the subsequent papers that I've published show that this contamination pattern is robust in the data. Now, they then go on to say, but we don't think it matters. So uh, you never really get anywhere with, with folks like that. Um, but getting, I guess, back to your original question, that's just one area where I, I saw these strong dogmatic assertions about the quality of the surface temperature data in that case. And then I just started digging and working on it myself, and I found that, no, they're not nearly as certain, or there isn't as much certainty there as they claim. And to the extent that they claim to have certainty, it's really just because they haven't looked very closely at the problem. So I've seen quite a few interviews with you, and in this one and in those, you're you're pretty gracious toward people who are really distorting your work and not being gracious toward you. Were you expecting this kind? I mean, this kind of conduct both before your research, but then after your research. Um. Well, yes and no. I mean, you never really know what to expect. But um, uh, just, uh, well, earlier today, I, I was in Toronto on an errand, so I got together with Steve McIntyre for coffee, and we were chatting about some of the stuff, and, and we thought, you know, it's really unfortunate for the climate science crowd that their most prominent spokespeople, like the public face of, the, of that discipline, happen to be a bunch of people that all seem to have really crappy personalities. <laughs> so so who are the top three or five? <laughs> well, I would say people like Stephen Schneider and Michael Mann and um, uh, Andrew Weaver and, and um, uh, Tom Wigley and, and Phil Jones, just people that um, don't present well publicly. I mean, they just come across as bombastic and, and dogmatic and... Um, in, in some cases, well, Stephen Schneider, I, I think uh, he, he's deceased now, but uh, some of uh, the ClimateGate correspondents, he, he comes across really quite badly, I think. And so uh, there's nothing you can do about that. I, like I say, I, I, don't, I can't think of a, a field of economics that has a big public profile. Like if, if you think about 
monetary economics, monetary policy. Okay, that's an important field with huge public policy implications. I don't think there's a public face to the economics profession that is uh, is anything other than kind of congenial and professorial. Uh, I'm sure there are strong personalities and maybe people fight it out in, in private, but you don't have people running Twitter accounts where they just disparage and heap abuse on anyone who disagrees with them, at least not that I know of. So I, I think it's just uh, an odd thing about that field. Um, and also the fact that a guy like Al Gore became the, the public face of the profession and uh, not just imposing himself on the discipline, but like when they invite him to speak to the American Geophysical Union and give him a standing ovation, they're telling the world, hey, this is this is our guy. You know, if you want to see what our scientific field looks like, here you go. This is this is it. And uh, it. So I suppose it's just a a bit of uh, bad luck and bad judgment and whatever um, that there are just some nasty personalities that work in that field. Now, uh, when you said I, uh, you very kindly said I'm I'm being gracious towards them. Uh, there's a bit of self-interest here. Like in my experience, you don't convince people by coming across as angry and, and nasty and vindictive and, and all that. And uh, I'm in these kind of debates to convince people, and I find that partly it suits my style, but also if you just stick with what you know and you stick with your facts and, and you try to avoid all the um, bombast and insults and so on, then you're actually going to get a better hearing from the public. Yeah, no, I mean, you know what you're doing. There's no doubt about that watching this. But still, I mean, it's, and it is just as a consumer perspective, much more, much more pleasant. And one, one thing that's, that's striking about the ridiculously labeled deniers is how much more nuanced they are and how much more careful they are than the so-called scientists. I mean, Mike Mann being an egregious example where he'll show someone a graph showing an average increase, you know, an increase in the global mean temperature anomaly, and he'll say, look, you see, they're deniers and they deny this as if that has anything to do with the actual uh, debate. And this, this man is presenting this as education. Yeah. Um, well, um, in that case, the other side does have so much institutional support that they can get really lazy and really sloppy with what they're doing because uh, he knows that if there are any reporters, they're not going to ask him questions. If there are any high school teachers, they're not going to challenge him. Uh, if, there, you know, if there's anybody in the room, chances are uh, they're either not going to challenge him or if they do, he can just blow it off and, and ignore it. So. What happens over time when you have a, a public debate and one side has a huge amount of institutional support, you can appeal to authority, you, you, you have all the media and the institutions on your side, they get lazy. They don't really have to uh, put their arguments forward carefully. And um, Whereas if I get up and do a speech to a, a public audience of some kind, uh, I have to prepare it very carefully and just walk people through stuff really slowly. I couldn't just get up and start spouting uh, denialist propaganda, so to speak, because 
uh, uh, I'm not in a position where I have any institutional authority to appeal to. I have to. I can only appeal to the arguments and the data that uh, that's at hand. Right. Well, you've probably. T- I know you've talked about this a lot of times, but I want to talk about uh, the hockey stick since I mean, to me, this is just one of the most important things that's happened and, and admirable in terms of you. Uh, and Steve McIntyre, and we, we've discussed it on the show before, but we've never had one of the two heroes of the episode. Uh, so I don't, if it uncom- makes it uncomfortable to call you hero, sorry. Um, but no, no. Uh, I mean, it's. it's I mean, people will like. see. We'll see that this is not an easy process that that you guys went through. So, um, tell us about you know the hockey stick, and I think it was the third assessment report, and then how you and Steve McIntyre got involved. Okay, so. Um, the, uh, the hockey stick is, is a graph that was prepared that, um, purported to show a reconstruction of northern hemisphere temperatures back, uh, first of all to 1400 AD and then further back to 1000 AD. And, um, the lead authors, Michael Mann, his co-authors, uh, were, um, uh, two guys, Bradley and Hughes. But Michael Mann has really been the, the, the public face of the hockey stick. Um, around the time his first article came out in Nature, he was also picked by the IPCC to be a lead author on the third assessment report that they were then working on. And uh, wouldn't you know it, the third assessment report turned out to treat the hockey stick uh, like a very important piece of work and um, in the chapter that he was a lead author for. So when the third assessment report came out, um, it was given a considerable amount of prominence. And certain claims in the document kind of amplified it. Um, So the IPCC report said that it uh, was robust to all kinds of statistical testing and and that it was a very uh, solid result. Um, The whole thing really comes down to statistics. So there are a lot of data sets involved, but um, at heart, it involves some long records of tree ring widths uh, extracted from some very old species of, of trees, like bristlecone pines and so forth. And then the statistical trick is you have to um, calibrate it so that it supposedly matches a temperature record. And um, so when I looked at the, the paper, it didn't impress me terribly. Um, because I couldn't really understand how they did it, first of all. The, the, the methodology was described in, in very convoluted terms, but it was clear in the end it was really some fairly simple linear methods that they were using, but it just sounded kind of complicated by their description. Um, but also, it, it just didn't look like it had taken adequate account of how uncertain these long-term reconstructions are and the, uh, how much extrapolation is involved. But I couldn't really make sense of it too much, so I didn't uh, look at it after after an initial attempt to study it. I kind of gave up. But then a while later, Stephen McIntyre, who I didn't know at the time, emailed me. This was in the summer of 2003 to say he was working on this, and just as a hobbyist in his spare time, he had uh, come close to being able to replicate uh, the study. But he was starting to find some really strange things that he couldn't account for. He couldn't uh, figure out 
um, especially regarding a, a step called the principal component analysis. And so we got together, and I looked over what he was doing, and I realized uh, he he'd really uh, uh, cracked the code, and and he was starting to work out some interesting findings. So um, we published a paper in the fall of 2003 where we documented a whole bunch of problems um, in the way the data set had been constructed and focused in particular on these principal components that we couldn't replicate and that looked like they were calculated incorrectly and that this affected the shape of the, the, the hockey stick, the, the reconstruction, it no longer led to the same conclusion. So that led to uh, a huge controversy right off the bat, and um, we immediately followed up with a um, petition to Nature magazine uh, that there were um, inaccuracies in the data description and the methodology description, and eventually Nature got Mann, Bradley, and Hughes to publish a correction. And um, along the way, we uh, finally decoded the error in their principal components method. Uh, it was, a, uh, a, I would say, an incorrect way of, of doing it. I don't think it was a deliberate um, step that they made, but it, it, what it had the effect of doing was finding hockey stick shapes in data sets and, and amplifying their importance um, so that in, in this particular case, they could have got a hockey stick shape out of random numbers in, their, uh, in the part of their analysis. So um, we published a study in 2005 explaining this and explaining that the, the main thing was it, it just means they can't be very confident in their conclusions, that um, this is way more uncertain than they let on and also that there was a bias imparted to the shape. Um, I would say that's sort of where the scientific story ends. There's a lot of back and forth of, of some people agreed, uh, some people disagreed, tried to find holes in our work. There was uh, the Wegman report that um, the uh, House uh, House Representatives commissioned and then the National Research Council put a panel together and we went and met with them and they put out a paper in 2006. And I think where it all ended up was um, an acknowledgement that uh, there were errors in the methodology. They did tend to bias it um, in towards finding a hockey stick shape. But ultimately, the, the conclusion of the National Research Council panel was that the uncertainties in these, uh, these kinds of reconstructions have been considerably understated. And um, that, uh, what the IPCC did in giving a huge amount of prominence to that graph and then putting it making it uh, an icon, really, of their report was they were taking something that was almost completely uninformative about the historical climate of the Earth and making it sound like this was the last word on the subject. Um, so that's kind of it in a nutshell. And then since then, there have been lots of different attempts to reconstruct past temperatures, and uh, some are better than others, and there um, there is a fair amount of variation and, and you know, people throw lots of opinions at each other, but I think underlying all this is still the problem that you're taking a fairly small amount of, of reliable temperature data and trying to extrapolate a thousand years into the past. And uh, tiny little changes in the assumptions can lead to big changes in the graph that you get. So I, I don't really put a lot of weight on, on those kinds of results.
Well, I, I called you gracious before at the risk of being ungracious toward these people. I mean, I'm trying to think of the equivalent in finance if you had this sort of misrepresentation. I mean, this is this is the centerpiece and it's presented to the public and it's in an inconvenient truth yeah. and it's it's invalid. I mean, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't. I mean, I think the organization should be disbanded because its very purpose is assumes that there's this huge problem. But I mean, you should, I mean, all these people should be dis discredited, even if it isn't dishonest. And I, I think there's a lot of money on. It's no accident that it went one way versus reverse hockey sticks. Like I think there's yeah. a reason for that, and it's just it's just so well, bad. Yeah, you're right that all the spectacular mistakes that the IPCC makes um, and all the non-spectacular ones, the problem is they all go in the same direction. That whenever they, uh, whenever they mess up, it's always they overstated the problem. And after a while, you realize it's not just carelessness, it's a pattern of bias. Now, you raise the finance parallel, and this was one of the things that got Steve McIntyre really interested because he comes from a finance background and he's been involved in corporate prospectuses and he's been through deposition processes and cross-examination processes. And, and in the business world, you have to make uh, really complete and careful disclosure. And if you put out a prospectus for uh, a corporate project and you're soliciting funds from investors and you withhold key pieces of information that would indicate how unreliable and uncertain your business venture is, uh, nobody's going to just say afterwards, well, you probably should have done a bit better job at disclosing it. No, the consequences are extremely severe, and people have gone to jail for that sort of thing. And so in this case, you know, one of the things we were coming up against as, as we looked at this was that some people in the climate science field don't seem to appreciate how big the financial implications are for the work that they're doing and how big the economic implications are. And they don't get the luxury of just being sloppy or biased or, um, or throwing stuff into UN reports that are going to go to world leaders and then afterwards saying, oops, you know, we're sorry, we didn't mean that. Um, it, it does discredit them. And uh, probably there should be uh, some severe consequences for that sort of thing. The reality is, though, that there isn't. And... Um, but if this was going on in another field, if this was pharmaceutical research and people were fudging reports that were going to go to a regulatory agency, then, again, people have gone to jail for this sort of stuff. One thing we've talked about the show and on the show in terms of exposing um, what's wrong, what's wrong with the field, or at least the, field, the way it's reported, is that you know, in better fields, you usually have a way of testing your theories that are clear to people. So, okay, we can, so people have an idea, well, the financial crisis was not anticipated by a lot of people that casts into doubt certain kinds of economic models. And now we have with the latest assessment report, um, how they have dealt with, they've had models that have made predictions and there have been certain results and they don't seem to have focused too much on those, on the results of those predictions. Right. Um, well, you you hit the nail on the head there. That um, what we have in to what we have with with climatology, uh, it's a vast discipline, obviously, and there are lots of aspects to it. But at the core, 
is a, a great deal of money that has been spent developing um, 22 or so major climate modeling centers around the world, huge computer-based climate models. And all of the, the elements of the mainstream thinking, as, as the IPCC summarizes it, are embedded in those models. And so um, for their historical reconstructions, they get to peek at the answer. They get to make sure that the models roughly reproduce the 20th century. And they've got lots of knobs that they can tune to make sure that happens. But then you get to certain forecast periods. And it's especially once you hit about 1980 or 1990, where depending on the way the model is run, they are trying to predict uh, what the world's climate should have looked like in response to the increase in greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that we can observe that took place and all the other changes that we know happened um, at the same time. And so it's that interval, it's a post-1980 interval especially, where it's really obvious in the data. The models have the temperatures just uh, flying upwards and yet the observations show a little increase flattening out by the mid-1990s, and then nothing after that. And looking in more detail, one of the most important regions is in the tropics, uh, in the troposphere of the tropics, because the models highlight that as an area where there should be extremely intense warming. Uh, there's an amplification process in the models in the tropics that takes uh, the warming that occurs there and, and, and has it really rapid and really intense in the, the troposphere of the tropics. And the discrepancy there is huge. There's almost nothing in the data. There's almost no trend to speak of. And a huge statistically significant discrepancy between the models and the observations. And these kinds of discrepancies, they've gone on long enough that they are statistically significant. And they're not closing up either. I mean, the, the models and the data are still diverging all these years later. And that was the issue that should have been dealt with up front in the new IPCC report. Um, there was a sentence in the draft summary for policymakers which acknowledged that models typically don't simulate well the lack of warming over the past 15 years or so. And it was the political delegates in Stockholm negotiating the text that insisted that that be removed and they, they talked their way around it. You can still find it in the big underlying report if you know where to look, but I would just think um, they've gone way out on a limb here because um, the models are already a long way away from where the data are. If this persists for another five years, then there'll be absolutely no way to reconcile climate models with the actual climate that we live in. And um, no matter how um, resistant a field is to change. Eventually, if your main models are uh, totally at odds with observations, the models do collapse and, and people have to abandon uh, the, the, the paradigm underneath the models. And I think we could actually see that starting to happen over the next couple of years, in which case this IPCC report is going to look like a really strange museum exhibit of uh, the old way of looking at it when uh, it's supposed to be an up-to-date assessment of where things are going in the field.
Yeah, museum. I mean, I think of them more like a Holocaust denier museum because they've. I mean, it's an assessment report. I mean, the idea seems to be let's give the most up to date thing, and part of what's relevant is what's actually happened to the models on which you're basing everything. So, I mean, why aren't they? I kind of know the answer, but why aren't they acknowledging this? I mean, their job—it's an assessment. It's got a very clear mission of let's tell everyone what happened and. Well, can you talk about just how much this stuff has been buried or or omitted in the report? Maybe that's a better way of asking. There is discussion, and and um, uh, so on the tropical troposphere that I mentioned, um, I paid close attention to that because I have a paper published in, a, in an atmospheric science journal on this issue, and so uh, in that case. I went into an existing debate between various teams and, and just said, look, you guys are all doing this wrong and here's how econometricians would do it. And I think we ended up uh, clearing up the, the issue, but it did come down pretty clearly on the point that uh, there's a statistically significant discrepancy. The models are way overestimating the warming here throughout the tropics. And so the IPCC accepts that. I mean, in, in that section of the report, they, uh, they report it more or less at face value. There wasn't a lot of stuff for them uh, over the past couple of years to look at in terms of the same kinds of analyses uh, for the global surface record. But there, I think, uh, people have tried writing on it. It's just been the journal editors haven't been interested in publishing it. And um, There's a bit of a feedback loop between what the journal editors are willing to look at and what the IPCC wants to have to work with. and um, so I'm not saying the IPCC is excused at all by the fact that uh, the papers that really nailed this point only just came out in the last few months and, and weren't available for them. Uh, I think the data's been there, and they, uh, given the number of people involved in preparing the report, any one of them could actually have, have written something on this and, and got the discussion going a lot longer. So. Um, they may claim that um, when they were putting the final version of the report together, they just didn't have the material to work with. But no, I think it's more a case that um, uh, they didn't really want to look at this issue. But obviously, they're not going to be able to avoid it. Right. Well, as as you've been talking, it just keeps this this the, this question just keeps coming to mind, and it's not a fully legitimate question, but. How is this? How is it possible that these guys are so badly behaved? Because the the public has a view of scientists. I think that that is you mentioned the term halo in regard to something else. But there's this halo, and oh, if you're a scientist, you're this guy, and you're like a mini Galileo, and all you care about is the facts. Da da da. da. And these guys are displaying some of the attributes of junior high students. Um, you mean the. Uh, the IPCC guys? The IPCC or the, you know, Michael Mann types. I mean, just, and, and you don't have to validate my junior high uh, insult of them, but how is it like, I mean, you're in, the, you're in this field and you see this kind of behavior. Is this, what, how is it, how is it so bad? Is it an incentives issue? Is it just a, a lot of academics are like this? Uh, there, I would put, uh, pay attention to two unusual features of the climatology discipline. The first is the existence of the IPCC. I think uh, maybe it made sense 
at some point to say, hey, why don't we put a big panel together to do an assessment report? But nobody thought through the fact that that is like dropping a giant magnet in a bucket of iron filings. I mean, it totally distorted the field. It just reoriented everything so people now think in terms of, can I get my work cited by the IPCC and, and can I uh, be on good terms with the IPCC? I mean, it, it, so it, institutionally, I think it's, it's distorted the discussion quite a bit. The other odd issue about climate especially is the number of professional societies that issue statements on behalf of their organization. So I've written about this, that uh, in economic societies, like the American Economic Association, Canadian Economic Association, in our constitutions, that the association will not issue statements on matters of, of uh, active research topics. And in fact, they don't issue statements on anything. And specifically, in, the, in, in saying so, they say in order to preserve absolute freedom of discussion in the discipline, uh, I think they recognize that if an association goes and makes a statement on something, then they've instantly created a hierarchy within the organization that says, if you're a member in good standing, you have to believe the following. And that's just not the way academia should work. That you shouldn't have these litmus tests. Um, people should argue their positions for themselves. And what happens though when the American Meteorological Society makes a statement or the American Geophysical Union or the National Academy of Sciences, uh, it's always a tiny little committee. Uh, they pick a half a dozen guys. Usually they're all heavily involved with the IPCC. They write a statement that they all agree to. And then it goes out and it's the statement from National Academy of Science or American Geophysical Union. and the members, though, don't ever get to vote on it. It's never shown to the membership that they can comment on it, but they don't actually get asked, do you endorse this? Do you agree with it? Uh, it's put out, though, so that activists can then say, well, look at the 36,000 members of the American Geophysical Union issued a statement. And so as these statements proliferated on the climate issue in particular, uh, I think there were just some politically very astute people that knew that if they pushed these organizations to issue these statements, then it really poisons the well after that. Because then if you're a member of the American Meteorological Society and you go to publish some work that directly contradicts the IPCC, then you're kind of saying I'm no longer a member in good standing of my organization or I'm out of the mainstream or I'm a maverick or something like that, which is an uncomfortable position for people to be in. And so I think it's suppressed a lot of the natural debate that should have taken place. So I think these organizations just shouldn't make statements. Or if they're going to make statements, they should also um, put it to their membership and, and publish the number of people that actually endorsed it. Uh, and not just issue the statement uh, as a, a committee. Uh, but much better would be what we do in economics, which is just the association doesn't take a position, doesn't issue statements. Individual economists have to take positions and argue their case for themselves. If we had that kind of situation in the, the climate science area, I think we'd be in a very different position now. I don't think you'd see this reign in orthodoxy and you wouldn't see the of the situation where a handful of, of prominent characters speak on behalf of the whole field. And I think we would actually see the kind of debate that, that should
should really be taking place and and, and probably would uh, if there wasn't this overhang of, of uh, orthodoxy there. Imagine the just general le- level of education and interest would be higher in terms of the actual issues that bear on it causally. In economics, I wouldn't say there's great economic education by any means, but these people talk about certain concepts like supply and demand, and they, they, they're they trying in some way to understand what's going on. Whereas with the climate, it just seems to be you use gasoline and the polar bears are dying, like that level of causality. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like... Um I, I mentioned monetary theory before. Now, that's a really important field, monetary policy and um, the operation of the money system and so forth. We don't have activists chaining themselves to bank machines and you don't have Coca-Cola putting out uh, Coke with, with pictures of ATMs on it or something like that. Like, there's, there's no expectation there should be public advocacy or activism in, in that way. And yet we're kind of used to the idea that Coca-Cola puts polar bears on the Coke can and, and insinuates something about you, know, you, you drove your car down the street and, and polar bears are dying. And um, I saw an advertisement on TV a couple of years ago for a, a German appliance manufacturer. And in the advertisement, they have all this uh, tornadoes and, and hurricanes and wild weather. And then the message of the ad was that it's time to switch to more efficient dishwasher because our energy use is wrecking the planet and so the way this has entered into um, public discussion and it, people are expected to take that seriously uh, so um, anyway there is something fundamentally missing that, uh, that absurd statements like that can can uh, that people can assume that they're going to be well received um, at least in economics, you mentioned supply and demand. I mean, in Canada, um, years ago, we debated whether to enter a free trade agreement with the U.S., and we had a really robust public debate and, and lots of points of view. But through all of that, there wasn't a single economics association in Canada that issued a position statement that said, you have to agree with this. I mean, it was clear that most economists were in support of it, um, that thought it would be a good idea. and wouldn't have a huge effect, but would be slightly positive. Um, but still, the people who spoke out had to make their own case. You couldn't just stand up and, and say, well, I'm going to appeal to the authority of the Canadian Economics Association because it didn't take a position on that. I'm reminded of a, a conversation I had with the booker from N- National Public Radio here in the U.S. who's doing a story on Bill McKibben, whom I've debated, so I think that's why they called me. And they... There started. I just started saying a couple of things, and I realized that the booker, the person who was doing the story, didn't know what the greenhouse effect was. Did had no idea of the mechanism of it. Um, and I essentially had to just give her a very basic primer in this kind of thing. But at the same time, she expressed absolute certainty that James Hansen's particular "quote unquote" identification of three fifty parts per million as this. Uh, sort of terminal level of atmospheric CO2 had been demonstrated. And I tried to get at, well, how do you think that works? Like, how did he come up with that? And how can you prove that? And and she had no idea, obviously, she didn't know anything about the subject, but it, 
it was just a really stark illustration. Wow, somebody educated from an educated place holds this religious view that this oracle just said something, and the way it's the way the oracle has functioned is they've it was in a scientific study, and if it's a quote study, then how could I say how could she not believe it? Yeah. Well, there are all these little loose threads that hang around, and you pull on any one of them, and and all of a sudden you things start coming apart. So uh, someone like the lady you were talking to can never be too careful about what she uh, makes sure she doesn't read or, or makes sure she doesn't look at. Well, on that note, since we're, we're, uh, we need to wrap up, um, any final thoughts for the audience on how to think about this issue, how to read on this issue, uh, just to be, be informed and, and be savvy? Uh, yeah, I would say, first of all, um, the uh, people shouldn't fall for the idea that this is all simple physics. Uh, yes, it's, it's simple, well-established that CO2 is an infrared-absorbing gas. It's a greenhouse gas, so there's a basic expectation that if the levels go up in the atmosphere, other things being equal, it should cause some warming. The whole debate is about whether it's a big effect or a small effect, and is it a big problem or is it not a problem? And that stuff is all still wide open. Also, the next couple of years are going to be really interesting here because I think that five years from now, um, most of what we're debating at this point are, is going to be wrapped up because it's going to be clear if the models and the observations don't come back into line with each other, uh, that means there are big problems in the models. And you will see some of the climate modelers and climatologists breaking ranks on this and, and saying, okay, we got to rethink this because they predicted a whole lot of warming that hasn't happened. Yeah, it's, I feel myself in this weird position of, of hoping for a particular temperature. <laughs> um, I, mean, I mean, for many reasons, but uh, do you have specific reason to think that, I mean, just knowing, you don't have to name names, but can you think of people who are on the fence and who would come around, or is it just that it would be so illogical at that stage? Um, well, I think, uh, for instance, um, a couple of Germans, Hans von Stork and Klaus Hasselmann, put out a paper back in the summer, and then there's some Environment Canada scientists put out a paper right at the end of the summer, uh, both teams pointing out that look, the, the observations are now down in a tail of the distribution of model runs, so they're only consistent with about 2% uh, of the model runs and the other 98% are running too hot. Another few years like this, and the observations are consistent with 0% of the model runs, in which case um, it's unstated in all of that is we would have no way at that point of, of reconciling the models and the observations without a major rethink. All right, uh, fascinating stuff. Well. Uh, Ross, I want to thank you again for coming on the program, uh, but especially uh, for all your work. I know you, you get a lot of opposition, and I don't think that's fair, but I'm glad that you that you do what you do. Okay, well, likewise, Alex, and, and good luck to you. Thanks again to Ross McKittrick for joining us. One of my favorite books, this might seem like a non sequitur, is the book Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Those of you who follow the book probably where there's a movie coming out later this year, which is very exciting. But anyway, there are many quotes from that book that I think are, are profound or inspiring. 
And the interview today reminded me of, of one of them. Um, and it might not seem obvious why, but I'll explain. And it's just a quote about some of the kids in the book who are doing very big things. And the quote is, they aren't normal. They act like, and there's a pause, so they act like history. And in the past couple of weeks, we've had on a couple of guests whom I really consider important parts of history. And that's, that's exciting, and particularly it's exciting because they're on the right side of history. They're doing important things, and, and we've already seen the results of them doing important things. I mean, with the hockey stick that Ross mentioned, nobody was countering this. I mean, it, there, there's a there's a great story which, if you um, if you search on our website for um, hockey stick on industrialprogress.com, Eric Dennis tells the story um, in a fairly comprehensive way. But it's just amazing that these these two figures who were in no way central to the field and who were outsiders just started asking some questions, and when Others tried to deter them. They just kept asking and kept asking and kept asking. What what would have happened had they not had they not done that? And I think it's an inspiring perspective that sometimes if you see an opportunity to do something good or you see an opportunity to right a wrong and nobody else is doing it, you can do it and you can be the one. You can be the one who makes a difference. And everybody who has made a difference. They had to face that same choice, and often it's rarely that everyone else is doing it, that there's a clear path, but it's that you see something independently. You think it's right or you think it's wrong, and you choose to do something about it, and, and you keep pursuing it. And I just, it's a real honor to be able to talk to people who have, who have gone through that process. And I think one, one thing that I appreciate them, about them is that even though they are part of history, even though they act like history, they're not at all grandiose in the way that they talk. And I'm talking about Pat Michaels, whom I, I talked about a couple weeks ago, and we spoke to a couple weeks ago, and and Ross McKittrick, and then others we've mentioned, like Richard Lindzen. They're just, they're sincerely interested in the truth and doing the right thing, and they pursue that with their with their eye on that. And from an external perspective, I don't think they think of themselves as heroes, but from an external perspective, from our perspective, uh, they are. And again, it's just it's it's great to be able to have them on the program. Uh, I hope everyone appreciates the opportunity to hear from them, and I hope that everyone draws inspiration uh, from them. All right, that's that'll wrap up the show for today. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrial progress.net. Make sure to check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy, facebook.com slash I love fossil fuels. Uh, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at industrialprogress.com. And for sure, make sure you're on that newsletter uh, immediately because next week we are releasing what might be uh, the most important document CIP has ever put out. It's an essay by me called the moral case for fossil fuels, the key to winning hearts and minds, and it synthesizes a combination of our philosophy of fossil fuels and how to think about them, including the environmental issues, and then the fundamental principles of communication that we use and that increasingly we're teaching businesses to use to win hearts and minds on the issue. So it's, it's primarily directed toward a business audience, but I think everyone uh, will find it 
at, at the very least, uh, an interesting and new uh, perspective. So make sure to be on the newsletter at industrialprogress.com so you can get your hands on that. And once you get your hands on it, I hope you'll pass it to a lot of people, particularly anyone you know in industry. We've sent out a couple of preview versions. It's been very well received. I think I'll do a Power Hour episode on it this week or next. And I'm hoping that this will help people and especially businesses take their ability to communicate the right ideas to the next level. And with that, we're really done this time. So next week, we'll be back with another great topic, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.